This is Michael Govier from the Is It Safe podcast, and you are now clear for communication with Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 198, Heavy Metal Albums of the 1980s. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers. This is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now, this week, we're going to be going back in time to the decade we all know and love, the 80s, and we're going to talk about our favorite heavy metal albums from that decade, and to help us relive this amazing metal music, Derek has invited a guest to join us, the one and only radio veteran, Greg Martin, a Detroit radio market veteran where he uh, hosted several shows featuring heavy metal and hard rock. and uh, But before we get uh, to any of our recent pop culture, uh, Derek, do you want to just introduce Greg to everybody? And, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Chris, how are you doing this week? You doing I'm good. well? I'm good. Thanks, buddy. Awesome. You? Awesome. Okay. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, around here from time to time, we like to have our friends and, and guests on the show, especially when there's a topic that uh, we feel that they can really add some flavor to. Uh, Greg and I have been friends since uh, we met. Uh, we were college roommates in the first year we were out at uh, in the University of Windsor, and uh, we've kept in touch ever since. So we've known each other uh, since the early 90s, and uh, a lot of common interests. And Greg's always uh, been one of, one of my friends that's like a real music guy. So when we reached out to him and asked him if he wanted to come on the show, uh, he, uh, he jumped at the chance, and when we asked him if he had any topics he, he'd be interested in, this is the topic he recommended. So, uh, Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you guys for having me. It's a, it's a privilege to be on your show. I love you guys' podcast, and I uh, appreciate you guys reaching out to me and uh, letting me share my uh, heavy metal and uh, hard rock knowledge with everybody because it's uh, something I love to do. So I'm uh, looking forward to uh, hearing your picks and uh, sharing my picks and getting feedback from people on their picks and uh, just having a good time. This might yeah, surprise yeah. you. This might surprise you. But back in the day, back in the 80s, I was a metalhead. That Hello. surprises me. <laughs> it does surprise you? Did you have long hair? Uh, yeah, I had pretty long hair and I loved heavy metal music. And obviously we're going to get into it uh, today, but I was a real metalhead. But before we get into the heavy metal music, Derek, what's new in the world of pop culture for you in the last week? Anything? Yeah, I've got a couple quick things. So uh, the first is uh, I went and had a chance to rewatch a movie from the late 90s. And Greg's going to probably have a few things to say about this one, too. The movie was in and out with Kevin Klein. Chris, have you seen in and out I have not, but I'm familiar with it. That's the uh, the one where the guy comes out. It was based on he's, the, the he's guy out at the Oscars. Oscars. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, it stars Kevin Klein, Matt Dillon, Joan Cusack, Tom Selleck, Debbie Reynolds, William Br uh, Wilford Brimley, Bob Newhart. Had a big cast. Uh, Greg and I were actually working together at Blockbuster Video when this came out. And uh, I can remember it was very popular. Uh, Greg, you remember when this one came out? You were still oh. at Blockbuster then, right? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I totally remember watching it. And uh, now that you bring it up, I was like, man, you know what? That movie's kind of like a trailblazer for everything going on in today's day and age. They were, they were ahead of their time. Yeah. If yeah, you made it, a remake of that in 2021, man, people would be all over it. Well, yeah, and I found that, um, to your point exactly, there are some some of what the movie presents was ahead of, well, maybe not ahead of its time, but certainly a trailblazer. But some of it, when you look back at it now, is even a little, you know, maybe not as, as kosher by today's standards. But obviously, someone's got to, you know, take those first steps. And I think this movie did a good job of, of handling what was a delicate topic at the time and using humor – in a way to convey the message without actually doing what Revenge of the Nerds does and point and go, that guy's gay, laugh at him. It's, you know, they, they've made this interesting story around it. And, and I thought it held up pretty well. I really liked it. I mean, Kevin Klein's great. I think he's underrated. And uh, he was he was fantastic in this. And it had a lot of good quotes in it. And uh, I was I had a good time going back to rewatch it. So he, he that married, was uh, he married Phoebe Cates, didn't he? She's the one with the red bikini. The red in, bikini. Uh, Fast Times, yeah, right? Fast Times. Yeah. He ended up marrying her. I believe they're still married to, I to think this day. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, the other 
Two other ones. I had a um, there was a mini series that uh, just finished. Uh, it was on in Canada here. We got it on Crave HBO, and in the U.S. it was on Showtime. And it's called American Rust. Uh, it stars uh, Jeff Daniels and uh, Maura Tierney, who is from ER. A lot of people remember her from ER. And it's sort of this slice of life, look at Americana. Um, this is what it says here on the Wikipedia. A compelling family drama that will explore the tattered American dreams through the eyes of complicated and compromised Chief of Police Del Harris, played by Daniels, in the Rust Belt town in southwest Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. And it's it's there's a the murder that happens at the end of uh, at the end of the first episode. It runs nine episodes. It was very slow, very boring, very well acted. But oh my god, I was like, okay, it's there's got to be a payoff to this thing. I watched the ninth and final episode this week, and I yelled at the TV. That's it. That's how this <laughs> stupid thing ends. I want my nine hours back. I was so ticked off. But Jeff Daniels is is pretty good in this like he 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 does a great job and if if he wasn't as good as he was in this i would not have sat through it but honestly i can't recommend this to anyone it is it it is super duper slow i I believe it's based on a book but wow this this is not uh not something for everyone and then finally i have a documentary for 40 days and 40 nights watch documentaries likes to learn about the world it's derek's documentaries derek's documentaries Greg, I like to sing around here sometimes. Well, hey, no, I, hey, you know what? Uh, when that song comes on and I'm in my car, I actually kind of sing along with it too. So, mm-hmm. it's, it's not my guest. It's not heavy metal. I apologize, but, you know, <laughs> but uh, what documentary do you have for us there, uh, dear? So, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. There's a ser- documentary series on Netflix called Bad Sport, and it's all about like cheating and gambling and people that that. abuse their position in the various sports Mm -hmm. for financial gain and criminality. And the first episode I watched was about college basketball and they were doing point shaving. Mm -hmm. And then there's, there's six episodes in total. The other five episodes all feature, we'll call them uh, fringe sports from the sense that most people in a North American audience are probably not as familiar. There's one about race cars. There's one about horse racing. Um, And then the one I watched this week was on cricket, which you know, I think a lot of people in North America have no idea what cricket is, myself included. Um, and this one was, uh, it was really good. It was about uh, a professional cricket player. I think I got his name spelled right here. It's Hansi Kronje? Kronje? Kronje. Kronje. I think that's how they pronounce it. From South Africa. And basically, he was a cricket superstar But during apartheid in South Africa, they weren't allowed to compete in international sports. So it was not something he would ever have been able to make a career at, except that when he basically became old enough to become professional, that's when they allowed South Africa back onto the world stage. So it was sort of right place, right time, right guy with the right set of skills. And there was uh, they talk about how in one of his first big international matches, um, the actual cricket team captain was unexpectedly injured and this rookie sensation basically had to step in to be the captain and just made all the right decisions and there was no turning back. And and he became like this super duper rock star in the world of cricket, a national hero, you know, could do no wrong. He ended up making millions through endorsements. The team went on to win all these international competition and, uh, and it was, again, I didn't know anything about cricket, so it was all new to me. And then, of course, you know something's going to happen because it's on this bad sport documentary series. And sure enough, it comes out that uh, eventually he he starts throwing games and make again as the captain in cricket. Apparently, you have a lot of discretion about how certain things happen and who plays and who bats in what order and things like that. And so he would make adjustments in order for some very unscrupulous people to make a lot of money gambling. And um, yeah, it was this fall from grace story, and it was it was very good, very compelling, and. I mean, I love the fact that I just knew nothing about it other than it's called bad sports. So someone's doing something bad somewhere in here. But, you know, you don't really know what happens until the end. And it was uh, it was really good. So uh, it's part of the bad sports series. It was the sixth and final episode. It's called Fallen Idol. These episodes run about an hour. I think this one was an hour, and 10 minutes. Uh, I can't wait to watch the rest of these episodes. So that was my third and final one for the week. Cool. Greg, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but any chance you've been able to do anything interesting in regard to pop culture recently? Any movies or TV shows you watch or anything to do with music, maybe, perhaps? Yeah. Um, I recently uh, checked out uh, Limp Biscuit, uh, the new metal and uh, late 90s uh, fame, uh, put out uh, their sixth album, 
on Halloween. Uh, the album's called Still Sucks. <laughs> you know, that's that's Limp Bizkit style. But, um, I like, people rag on Limp Bizkit all the time. They're, you know, everybody's punching bag, especially Fred Durst. But I got to be honest with you, I was uh, one of the survivors, if you will, of Woodstock 99 uh, when I was there. And never in all the live shows have I gone to has there been a mosh pit, crowd surfing, crowd reaction that I've ever seen in the Limp Biscuit set at Woodstock 99. If you were there, you will never forget it. It was as close to chaos and anarchy as you'll get. And I think you've seen enough documentaries. Derek, obviously, who watches documentaries, yep. uh, no. they will tell you, like, it was pandemonium for 70 minutes from beginning to end. They literally were the band that everybody wanted to see there. So I, I of course, like everybody else in the late 90s, love Limp Biscuit, but over time lost touch. Uh, just because they sort of faded into the background. Um, this is their sixth uh, album that they put out. And the last album they put out an album before that was 2011, this album called Gold Cobra, which is, wasn't bad, but, you know, it just, you know, didn't get a great reception. And the first single that came off uh, this album was called Dad Vibes. And, uh, you know, it had a Limp Biscuit feel, but it was just missing a certain punch to it that uh, Limp Biscuit usually brought. Like, you know, just I guess they're missing the heavy. It was good, but it wasn't great. But again, I have a Spotify account and I pay for it every month. So when uh, Still Sucks came out on Halloween, I'm like, all right, I'll give it a chance. I'll download it, listen to it. And uh, I got to say it it was OK. Uh, out of five stars, I got to give it three. Uh, it has some good songs on it, uh, but, but it it. It, it didn't stand the test of time. Like, it, they, you know, what worked in 1999 is not going to work in 2021. Um, this album, to me, almost felt like um, when the Beastie Boys back in the day put out Paul's Boutique, and they went and said, okay, well, we're not going to do our heavier sound that we had on License to Ill. We're going to kind of get funky discoer with Paul's Boutique sound. And people were like, this is, this is not the Beastie Boys that I know. But then, like, five years later, Later, everybody went back and loved Paul's Boutique as an album, but this one will not uh, have a Paul's Boutique feel to it. I think it's just gonna, <laughs> it, it, it's just gonna come and go. I, I just don't see it really being anything other than, you know, Limp Biscuit putting their name out there to try and get back into the spotlight and maybe go on tour when everything calms down. But they've been trying to put this album out since 2012. And uh, the, a lot of critics uh, jokingly called it the Chinese democracy of Limp Bizkit. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, so uh, it's it's worth a listen if you like Limp Bizkit. I say uh, give it a try and uh, see what you like. I highly recommend the song Out of Style. If you like late 90s, uh, early Limp Bizkit, uh, that is the one song on there that's going to stick out to you and be like, that's the Limp Bizkit that I know. Uh, the other stuff, go in with an open mind and see if you like it. Okay, <clears throat> guys, I got something for you. Now, Derek, I know you're not much of a wrestling fan, but Gre Greg, how about you? No. You ever watch wrestling when you were younger? Oh, my God, I was obsessed in the 80s with the WWF. Oh, God, okay, you're going to love this. Because you've heard of De Ted DiBiase, the Million Dollar oh, Man. Oh, the Million Dollar Man. You remember him. Remember, yep. he used to have a bodyguard named Virgil. Yeah. I mean, you remember him, too, right? Yep. Before he was the Million Dollar Man's bodyguard, he was a jobber named Lucius Brown. But anyway, best known as Virgil. In WWF. So anyway, he was appearing at this Comic-Con that I went to on the weekend with my 12-year-old son. So we get there. Oh, and Derek, you had given us a list of some of the, the Batman comics that you needed to fill out your collection. So my son and I get to the Comic-Con and we go right to the comic vendors section and we start, you know, searching. We start looking through the boxes, right? We're looking for all the Batman comics for Derek. And we're looking through it and this guy walks up to us and he's eating a slice of pizza and he just starts talking to me like just out of the blue. And I look up and it's Virgil and he just looks at me and he, and he looks at me and my son and he goes, I don't like pepperoni pizza. And I'm <laughs> like, okay, uh, why not? <laughs> Gives me the <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, I eat the pepperoni. I start to shit. Soon as I eat it, goes in my stomach. Stomach starts rumbling. Got to shit. Pepperoni pizza. Gives me the and I'm like, all right, um, thanks for sharing this with me and my young son. So what was it like working with Vince McMahon? And, and he's like, it sucks. He was an asshole. 
he's like, he's like if Vince McMahon doesn't, doesn't like you, he makes sure that you never work again. That's what he did to me. Did I mention pepperoni gives me the <laughs> I'm like, yes, you were kind enough to share that with us. Yes, thank you. So I, don't, I, I think maybe Virgil took a few too many blows to the noggin back in his wrestling days. Because, man, that is one weird, weird dude. So that's, that was my experience this week. Uh, okay, I got this. Did you happen to see how much he was charging for autographs? I, he, he was, I believe, I've seen a thing on, on the internet where they called it Lonely Virgil. And where he just sits there at the table by himself, that's pretty much what was going on. Yeah, he apparently charges like uh, Undertaker type money for autographs that he's Virgil. Yeah, so yeah, he's he's Virgil, and but you know what? I but I do believe that he will accept it in cheese pizza because I mean that doesn't give him <laughs> so there's always that. So anyway, here we go. Here's your dad joke of the week, gentlemen. In honor of Virgil, this week I'd like to do a pizza dad joke for you. Okay, what is the difference between a good pizza joke and a bad pizza joke? I have no idea. The delivery. Wow. Don't like that one? No. You know how they say there's no such thing as bad pizza? Mm -hmm. There's such a thing as a bad pizza joke. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There is such a thing as bad pizza. It's the kind that gives Virgil the for Christmas was a new intro. Get in the studio um, and record. All right, man. okay. The gauntlet has been thrown down. Just last week, I weaned out Roger Moore. He was totally satisfied. I have no idea who that is. Penis reduction surgery. The absolute best documentary I saw all year was Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. He sounds like a nice guy. Right? I, I kind of walked into that one, didn't I? All right, gentlemen. So, so heavy metal was a real thing back in the eighties. And it got started back in the late 60s. I, I, I think a lot of people tend to point to bands like Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple as, you know, the quote unquote pioneers of heavy metal. For me, I always felt Jimi Hendrix with Are You Experienced was one of the, you know, the first examples of metal that I, I always think of. I mean, God, he was amazing. But it was really bands in the 70s, like Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, Kiss, especially Van Halen, I think really kind of put metal into the mainstream. But then in the 80s, things just took off and there was this burst of heavy metal bands. I think it's safe to say that, you know, the 80s is when heavy metal just flourished. But I have a question before we get into our heavy metal albums from the 80s. Does heavy metal even exist anymore? Now, you know, I don't really pay attention to any pop culture after 1989. Now, Greg, you mentioned Limp Bizkit has a new album. So heavy metal, it's still around? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's just more underground than it, it's not really arena based. It's a lot more, uh, you know, clubs and and theaters, smaller audiences. But uh, they're still every year they do uh, weekends full of uh, festivals with all metal bands, uh, big and small. Uh, when they put on a festival in uh, Montreal every summer called Heavy Montreal, it's uh, two days back to back, full days of metal bands, uh, and the place is packed. It's just that uh, heavy metal is kind of um, uh, taking a backseat back into the underground. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you were mentioning, all the genres that you have now, it's hard now to find uh, heavy metal that just appeals to fifteen or 18,000 people a night. There's like a handful of bands that can do that. So because of the different genres of heavy metal that exist now, you get smaller crowds. But for me, I prefer it. I actually enjoy going to smaller venues to see my heavy metal shows and going into big venues. Right. But heavy metal is still still very popular. There's you got uh, you got two or three channels on the XM radio that uh, play metal all the time, and they play probably a lot of the older stuff too. I would imagine. Uh, yeah, well, Ozzy's Boneyard on the XM plays like mostly all the older stuff. But there's mm-hmm. a channel called Liquid Metal, and uh, they play all the newer bands and and what have you. I actually uh, prefer going to these uh, metal festivals and getting there right at the beginning of the day and uh, checking out the second stage uh, where all the smaller bands are because. The guy on the main stage, you know, he's made it. He he knows you're there to see him. So the guy on the second stage, he's not used to getting these size of a crowd. So when he comes out, he's giving you 110% and leaving it all out on the stage because he knows he's got this opportunity that he's not going to get again. And and you get to see these bands that are just incredible. And then like three years later, they're, you're, you're going to see them on the main stage. So uh, uh, my recommendation is anytime you go to a heavy metal festival, 
always go to the second stage because the second stage is where it's at uh, with binding new bands. Uh, always, always, always check out the second stage because you're going to find great talent there all the time. Oh, some great advice for uh, for people like metal and for people that like metal like I said before you know we know that the 80s was like this sort of you know massive time for metal so we want to go back and we want to run down our top five list of our five favorite heavy metal albums from the 80s Greg you want to kick it off what do you got for number five take it away uh, no, well uh, I didn't really go with my five favorite I went with uh, because as I, I was mentioning uh, in our conversations before the show uh, by Saturday, I was still at 75 albums. Like I could not narrow it down to five. So I went a route where I said, I'm going to take five albums that I feel uh, played a, a, an influence on the, the landscape of metal in the 80s or uh, may have been something that uh, people overlooked as an album. Uh, they didn't, you know, didn't see it in the same way that, you know, you might now. So to start things off, I'm going to go with 1982 uh, with the band Kiss and their album Creatures of the Night. Wow. Now I know that's yeah, it's a little it's a little off, uh, you know, from being a a, a monster album. Mm-hmm. But what for me Kiss has always been a big favorite of mine cuz they're the ones who got me into heavy metal. Well, more more Gene Simmons did because when I was 5, I was in the store and I saw that solo album uh, with Gene Simmons on the cover, you know, where they released the four solo yeah. Kiss albums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I saw Gene's album cover and I thought oh, he looked so cool and so amazing. I picked it up brought it to my mom I'm like you got to buy this for me and she's like what is it i'm like i don't know but i gotta have it and i went home put on the record player fell in love with with not only kiss but then metal in general so i'm a big kiss guy but, but creatures of the night was a big album uh because uh a few years before that kiss came out with uh i was made for loving you and the disco uh, kind of heard the, yeah. yeah the disco song and yeah. kiss fans back then hated it because they said they'll never make a disco album they'll never make a disco song and they went ahead and made a disco song so kiss fans weren't very happy about it and then the next album that came out was called the elder and it was a concept album and it just did not work it was really dull really boring and all the reviews were coming out is kiss's time done is the kiss fascination over you know um have people you know had enough of kiss and so Peter Chris had left the band and when they put out Creatures of the Night, by the time the album was released, Ace Freely was out of the band. So Vinnie Vincent was uh, now on guitar for Kiss at that point, even though he's not on the cover, but he did play on. And that album came out and it was so much heavier than anything that they had put out before. Like they had come out and they, they said, you know what, we're, we're going to go with our mantra. If you wanted the best, you got the best. And it came out and it was heavy. And my favorite Kiss song of all time is on there, which is War Machine. And here's an interesting fact. War Machine was written by Canadian uh, singer-songwriter Brian Adams of Summer 69. Yep, he wrote it. And uh, Gene Simmons actually said that when they were making this album and Brian Adams was at the studio helping them make War Machine, uh, he kept interrupting Gene trying to have relations with women, and it really annoyed him. <laughs> so it was uh, it was it was not exactly uh, you know Brian Adams' finest moment, but it, I, I was amazed to find out my favorite Kiss song was written by Brian Adams, and they had that video uh, "I Love It Loud" where it's uh, they got that big tank on the stage, and it, it's it, it you know it's shooting off explosions and there's lights and everything, and it, it gave people the chance to see what Kiss is really like live and what they can do and it's sort of uh, as i mentioned before about paul's boutique with the beastie boys this was a great comeback album for kiss uh you know this made people realize hey you know what kiss isn't gone kiss is still here kiss is still heavy kiss is still good i was gonna go with lick it up as my choice because that was the first album they played without the makeup on yep but then i was like you know what it was an album but just because they didn't have makeup on it wasn't that great an album but creatures of the night uh, I thought was a, a great album to put Kiss back up on the map. All right. I like it. Over to your number five, Derek, what do you got? I feel woefully un- underprepared after hearing how much homework Greg did for his pick. Uh, <laughs> I just so, like that he uh, mentioned Lick It Up, I guess. I love that. Yeah. It's yeah. So no, that's a good tune. Unmasked. So, Chris, I just want to back up for a minute. Yeah. One of the things you had said. So, in my mind, uh, when I think of heavy metal, I always think of 
rock and roll from the 70s. I think of hmm. Black Sabbath. Yeah. I think of uh, Judas Priest. I think yeah. of, you know, some of the, uh, you know, the thing, the, the bands we talked about before, mm-hmm. Deep Purple. And to me, they always sort of fell into that classic rock genre. But a lot of it is definitely in my mind is what I when someone says, well, you know, what kind of what's a heavy metal to you that that to me is always more what I feel heavy metal is. So when we got this topic, it was like, yeah, there's a lot of rock from the 80s. But I'm like, I don't know how much of this I would I would call heavy, you know, quote unquote, heavy metal. So it's like my picks are going to skew a little more towards the mainstream of rock. And there's definitely going to be a lot of argument about, I don't know if what you've picked is metal, but uh, I'm going to keep we'll Greg, let Greg be the judge it. of this. It should be fun. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So <laughs> I, my please tell me he's not going to go with like yeah. starship. We built this city or something. like that. <laughs> He's no, in trouble. No, okay. Go ahead. You're number five. Okay. So my number five pick, I've talked about this album before. I've mm-hmm. talked about the songs on this album before I talked about the band before I'm going with Def Leppard hysteria. Is it heavy metal, yep. quote unquote? I Maybe. I mean, definitely yeah. earlier Def Leppard, I would feel in my mind is more sort of the heavy metal. Like their first two albums were definitely more of that raw feel, which I always associate that sort of raw sound with with being the heavy part of heavy metal. But this was definitely a, a rock. You could call it glam metal or hair metal. And this album uh, was huge. Like it had uh, it released seven singles. It, uh, it came out in 1987. It, uh, it sold over 20 million copies. Uh, it was produced by, uh, Mutt Lang who yeah. has a phenomenal reputation and like it had a, a huge list of singles, pour some sugar on me, um, uh, women, animal rocket, Armageddon, it love bites. Their number the first number one from Def Leppard. Like this album, although love bites is, is a hair ballad, a love ballad, but, uh, when, when it's heavy and it's rocking, it it's there. So I, I I felt that this being one of my all-time personal favorites, I had to include this on the list. That's why I'm putting it in at number five is Def Leppard Hysteria. No, I think that's a good one. All right, guys, I got one for you. You remember Tawny Ketane? She became famous for laying across White Snake's car in the Here I Go Again video in 87. But that wasn't her first foray into heavy metal. Oh, no. She first appeared on the cover of one of the most recognizable heavy metal album covers of all time. And that's Out of the Cellar by Rat. And I think everyone always thinks of this album, they think of the two big songs, you know, Wanted Man and Round and Round. But I also like some of the other songs on here. Lack of Communication. Remember that one, Greg? Lack of Communication, Back Off. And the the, the video for Back For More with Tawny Keaton, she used to go out with the guitarist, Robin Crosby. And... For some reason, in the video for that song, he's playing an acoustic guitar on stage, even though it's like this super thrashy song. So it's just weird. But Round and Round is the song that makes this album so, so good. It it's is, a great song. I love oh that song. God, it is one of the best heavy metal songs of the 80s. Rat is definitely a glam metal band. Um, they had their own unique sound for sure. And they, they didn't just play three chords. It was all a little bit more thrashy sounding, but still mainstream enough to bring in that wider audience. I mean, hell, the album went triple platinum in the States and Rad Rad was pretty good. And I I really liked them when I was a teenager. I used to take a bus to school and I would listen to cassette tapes on my Sony Walkman. And this is one of the tapes I used to listen to the most on the way to and and, and home from school as a ninth grader. Rad out of the cellar, baby. My number five. Uh, Number four. Uh, what do you got, uh, Greg? Uh, well, uh, since we're, we're talking about Rat and we're talking about Def Leppard, uh, I kind of went with uh, the people I consider the pioneers mm-hmm. of uh, hair metal. And uh, I went with 1983's uh, Shout of the Devil by Motley Crue. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and, nice. Yeah, it was, it, to me, that was uh, the album that uh, first made me realize um, how much I, I like heavy metal girls. Because... The one thing about Motley Crue and Shout at the Devil era was that it. the reason I, I picked the album was that it broke the the gender barrier in heavy metal, which was where the fans were predominantly males. You know, it wasn't a very female-driven fan base. And Motley Crue came out, and all of a sudden there was a, a, a large fan base of girls now who liked this kind of music. And they were almost like the first boy band of heavy metal because you had four different personalities in there, depending on what you wanted. Did you want Bad Boy Vince? Did you want 
quiet, brooding uh, Nikki Six? Did you want fun, playful, immature Tommy Lee? Or did you want the mysterious <laughs> sure, Nick Mark? I'm pretty sure that's like not was, what the girls were looking for when it came yeah, to Yeah, I know. Lee. But, I, you know, I, but it, it was that sense, you know, there was, yeah. they had those personalities going. And But I, I never really considered Motley Crue to be a hairband until that theater of pain era. Uh, you listen to the stuff on Shout of the Devil, and it's edgier, and it's it's got heavier riffs than you would on any other uh, hair metal record. And one of the reasons that it, I also think that it's it sticks out is because they do a cover of the Beatles' uh, Helter Skelter on there. Yes. And uh, I had no idea that the Beatles even did Helter Skelter. I only knew, like, uh, you know, I want to hold your hand, and she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the to hear Helter Skelter and find out that the Beatles recorded something that had that kind of heavy sound to it was amazing. So it opened up a whole new world for me to find uh, different styles of Beatles music other than just, you know, the suit and the tie stuff that they did. And uh, the Looks at Kill video is classic. I mean, they played that on Much Music, uh, Power Hour, nonstop all the time. Uh, that, that's just a classic video. And I can't stress enough that the best thing you can do the best book that you can read and the best book that you can buy is the dirt which is the biography of motley Crue. i bought that book i think it's about five maybe 600 pages and the first day i bought it i started reading it at like seven o'clock at night and i stopped reading it when the sun came up i could not put it down it is just such a fantastic book all music books should be made like the dirt so if you're a big fan of motley Crue and you haven't read the dirt shame on you go out and get it Greatest music book ever written. Nice. And great album at number four. Love your pick. Okay, Derek, what do you got for your number four? All right. So we, we limited ourselves to picks from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And this one just squeaks in. It came out in October of 1989. So a lot of people don't realize that it is technically by the numbers from the 80s. Mm-hmm. But I'm going with Pretty Hate Machine by Nine Inch Nails. So this is definitely more of an industrial sound than a heavy metal sound. But I think it's a good example of how music changes and evolves. And so earlier I was saying, I think of heavy metal as more of that 70s classic rock sound, which I think a lot of people would agree with. But you don't get Pretty Hate Machine without that sort of classic rock sound coming 10 years earlier. And I think this is a good, uh, a really good example of, uh, of how you know, you've you've gone through a decade of synthesizer pop, and here's Trent Reznor who's now using these tools in a way to make uh, a sound that's a heavier sound. It's it's um, you know it, it it doesn't sound anything like Duran Duran and Depeche Mode, but he's using some of the exact same tools that they use to make a very different style of music to appeal to a very different audience and to uh, you know to give it a more heavy heavy sound. Um, this is, this is one of my all time favorite albums. I, I, I always, well, like I used to, when I had a CD player in the car, I would just throw the CD on and I would just listen to it start to finish. I love every song on this one. Uh, as I mentioned, it came out in 89. Um, it, uh, was apparently was on the, uh, the billboard to the billboard 200 charts for 115 weeks. So that's more than two years. It's a long staying power. So I, it obviously was the kind of thing that, was uh, experimental at the time and a lot of people dug it or a lot of people started to come around on it which is part of what kept it on the charts for so long uh people know it uh it had the biggest um uh single original single from uh, nine snails with head like a hole but they also had down in it and sin were uh, a couple of singles off that one as well but this is uh this is definitely one that when someone's like what are your hev- heaviest albums in your collection when you this this definitely it fits that category for me. So I'm doing Pretty Hate Machine from 1989, Nine Inch Nails, my number four pick. All right, my number four. I'm I'm aligned with Greg on this one. Shout of the Devil, Motley Crue. There's the title, the pentagram on the cover. This album, when it came out, was immediately targeted by Christian groups. It caused all this controversy. But the thing was, when it came out, I was a teenager. I didn't care about any of that stuff. I wasn't much of a rebel as a teenager. Like, I didn't just do things just to tick off my parents or anything like that. That wasn't me. One thing I did like about this album was the music. I had never heard a sound like this before. There's the, 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 the remember they do the intro called In the Beginning? Yes. But then the chords open up for the intro to Shout at the Devil. Like just, wow. <laughs> like it, They use like this drop D tuning and they 
like totally overdriven, like three chords that just make up the intro. Man, this song packs a punch. Like I, I never thought it was possible to have music hit you so hard in the gut like I was when I heard this. And when you hear the intro to that first song, like you just, you feel it in your gut. It's not quite the, the you know, the whole pepperoni pizza that gives Virgil the kind of gut rumble. But I mean, but it, but it packs a punch. You know what I mean? That's, that's the way music should be evaluated at this point. <laughs> is, it, is it virtual gets the it's kind of heavy metal music or is it just regular? But anyway, but this, this album, I tell you, like I say, it opens great and it just keeps getting better. Like looks that kill. Probably the best song on the album. And like Greg mentioned, that cover of Helter Skelter, which if you think about, I was talking before about, you know, Jimi Hendrix and the roots of heavy metal. If you go back and listen to the original song by the Beatles, you could argue that that song by the Beatles is, is the roots of heavy metal music right there. But, uh, and the thing was like, like Motley Crue had already done a studio album before this one came out, but this one put them on the map. Like it was huge. Oh man, it was loud. It had all these overtones in it about the occult but mostly the music is just a wall of sound it's it, it's the heavy metal version of eating pepperoni pizza shout at the devil number four so number three greg what do you got um well uh, leaving them off the list would be a travesty so i i made sure to at least include one i was going to include two but then i was like that's too much so uh 1984 iron maiden put out the album power slave and uh, they came over uh, with all that new wave of British heavy metal that was taken over here in North America, which, as we discussed earlier, allowed for metal to explode uh, when all these British bands came over like Judas Priest and Motorhead. But Iron Maiden w would already had success with uh, Number of the Beast and Peace of Mind before Power Slave. But Power Slave was that defining album for Iron Maiden where they said, you know what? We're more than just like you know a metal band. We got we got uh, musical talent. We got musical abilities. We can write intellectual lyrics. We can make longer songs. Like they have that song "Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner," which is like 15 minutes long, and you're not bored. Like you can listen to all 15 minutes of it and not be bored for a single second. But another thing that Power Slave did that that set a trend in the metal world was. Uh, do you remember the cover art on Power Slave? Yeah, I was going to say that, Greg. You can't talk about Iron Maiden and not mention the album art. Yeah, yeah, the album, like the album art for Power Slave, where uh, their mascot Eddie is 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 dressed as the Pharaoh on the pyramid, is just fantastic. And at that point, they set the bar for every other heavy metal band and said, "Hey, if you're putting out an album, you you know you can't just put your face on it and you guys standing in front of a wall. That doesn't work anymore. You got to have something." And uh, the tour that they did for Power Slave, uh, where Twisted Sister uh, was the opening band for it, and they were doing their Stay Hungry uh, stuff, is considered legendary. Like, when you talk to uh, metal bands today, they all talk about how legendary that tour was for Power Slave. And if you're a big Iron Maiden fan and you're looking for something interesting to, to, to watch, uh, there's a Canadian documentary a guy named Sam Dunn. And uh, he does all kinds of musical documentaries. Uh, it started with Global Metal, and he's branched out to do other things. Uh, Derek, uh, he did one about Rush that I think you'd really like, too. And uh, he did a documentary called Flight 666, where he went around uh, with Iron Maiden when they were doing their Somewhere Back in Time tour. And he basically used that documentary he, he, where he flew on Iron Maiden's private plane. They're, they're, they have their own jumbo jet. And uh, they went all around the world, and it was just amazing to see that the reception that they get in every single country they go to is just absolute insanity. Uh, people sleep out for days just so they can get a good spot in front of the stage to see them. So, uh, again, I picked Iron Maiden's Power Slave. I just thought it was their, their, their best album in the 80s. Nice. All right, Derek, what's your number three? All right, uh, my number three pick. I think mm -hmm. I would not be surprised if this band and maybe even this album is going to appear on this on the, one of our, at least one of our other lists because mm -hmm. you can't do a, a heavy metal list and not put ACDC on there. So uh, my number three pick is Back in Black nice. by ACDC from July 1980. So just squeaks in under the wire there on the other end, whereas the last one was in 89, this is 1980, 10 years earlier. So this is a huge album. 
Um, you know, I think a lot of people, they had a tremendous amount of commercial success, a tremendous amount of staying power. It had songs like You Shook Me All Night Long, obviously Back in Black, the title track, Hell's Bells. So these are big mainstream hits that certainly rock. And this was the first album to feature uh, the new singer, Brian Johnson, after their previous singer, Bon Scott, had died. Um, and so, again, there was a lot of uh, ex expectation or uh, mystery around like how's it gonna how's the new singer gonna do like is it gonna is it gonna be any good like that's always the big thing with a band right the lead singer leaves or in this case the lead singer dies can the band still do what they did before as good or better with somebody new and i think that you know this was a pretty good uh pretty good introduction to say yeah the new guy can do it and uh Again, this this leans very much on what, in my mind, a heavy metal needs to be. It's it's that, you know, it's got to be loud. It's got to be that that drums, the guitars, the 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 heavy, the raw rock and roll sound. This this is definitely built out of that '70s classic rock sound, which again is is sort of in my mind what you need to be a, a strong heavy metal album. Um, sure, ACDC has had some commercial success, um, and I, I know that. Some of the perception with heavy metal has always been, well, you know, once you sell X number of albums, you've sell, you, you know, you're selling out. You, you, you know, you don't know what it is to be metal anymore. You're, you know, you've selling out. And and I'm sure they had that kind of criticism, but uh, they they still rock it. And then, <laughs> I mean, there's the, the the big joke is every ACDC song sounds the same, and it's like, yeah, but they've been singing it for 35 years, and isn't it great? Um, so I got to put Back in Black as my number three for my. Uh, top five favorite heavy metal albums from the 80s every easy easy song sounds similar but they don't sound the same because they all have a unique hook to them oh yeah for sure so they're so so good uh okay my number three derek you mentioned um um hysteria by def leppard and i'm gonna go with def leppard as well but one of the albums that really influenced me as a teenager like and as a musician i guess was pyromania from def leppard it was it came out in 83 and and the band had been somewhat successful before that they had a song called bring it on the heartbreak from high and dry mm -hmm. in 81 but they just exploded when pyromania came out and everyone obviously remembers songs like photograph and and foolin and but i will always equate being at the local arcade with hearing the song rock of ages there was there was a jukebox at the arcade and they didn't have very many metal songs in it but a lot of the the kids at the arcade, we like we like metal music, so Rock of Ages just got played over and over and over and over again, and and I was okay with that because I mean it's a great song, and I even really liked the opening track, Rock Rock Till You Drop. The, the whole album's amazing, you know, and 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 they went on to, 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 to I think more commercial success with Hysteria, you know, like like you mentioned Derek with Pour Some Sugar on Me and stuff like that. But for me, it was it'll always be Pyromania. That was the big influence for them. I, I love this album. And when I think back to that time in my life, I always think of this album. Like The, the cover is amazing. You know, you, uh, Greg mentioned, you know, how important it is to have a, a great cover. And I, I thought that the art was very unique and was, was, was pretty cool. They kind of copied the same style when they did Hysteria. But um, I recently bought a black t-shirt with the Pyromania cover on it. And I get so many comments on it. I think I think people recognize this album for what it is. That it's it's one of the most iconic heavy metal albums of the eighties. So it's my number three. All right. Number two, Greg, what do you got? What I got? Well, uh a lot of the time, I think heavy metal is that one genre where every band has a live album. I don't know any other genre of music that has as many live albums as heavy metal has. <laughs> Seems like everybody's got one. So I was going to go with uh, Iron Maiden's Life After Death, but I already picked Power Slave. So I went with uh, what many consider to be the quintessential live uh, metal album, and that comes from the legendary Motorhead, uh, No Sleep Till Hammersmith. Wow. Which, yeah, it that if you know Motorhead, like they're a great band. There's no doubt about it. But the one thing about Motorhead is that it's the live experience that makes Motorhead what it is, they were faster, they were heavier, they were louder. Loudest show I've ever seen in my life, uh, Slayer with Motorhead in 1988. It was, I was deaf for like three days after. <laughs> it was insane. But the this album, because they were still young at the time, was able to capture that, that speed, that heaviness, that loudness. And it actually remained number one on the UK album charts. And if you can believe that, a Motorhead album was number one on the UK charts, which is crazy. 
And and the funny thing is, is that in almost like a Spinal Tap kind of way, uh, on that tour where, where they recorded all these songs to put the album together, uh, not one date was at the Hammersmith. <laughs> I, I have no idea why it's called live, you know, No Sleep Till Hammersmith because they didn't play there. And they originally wanted it to be a double album, but they didn't have enough to record four sides. So it stayed just a, a single album. But uh, the reason why this album took off was because the album that they were touring it for was, of course, the legendary Ace of Spades album. So uh, it uh, comes in at number two for me and being the number one live metal album that if if you got to buy one live metal album, No Sleep Till Hammersmith with Motorhead. Very cool. All right, Derek, number two heavy metal album of the 80s. All right. Uh, well, uh, they say um, uh, imitation is the most sincerest form of flattery. So my number two pick is Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil, nice. which appeared on both of your picks. Yes. So I don't really think there's a whole lot more to say about this. I, I absolutely agree with Greg. The Dirt biography book was fantastic. They did a, uh, a Netflix movie version of it, which was just okay. It was a little bit tame, but again, it was nice to, to revisit that source material when the movie came out on Netflix. Um, one of the things that uh, that I always remember was when I got that album, again, my parents were like, oh, we're hearing in the media, we shouldn't be letting you listen to it. And I remember one of my buddies who was really uh, into like rock and roll and heavy metal more than I was. He's like, if your parents tell them that, just say, mom, it's called shout at the devil, not shout with the devil and let them stew on that for a while. And so, yeah, I remember having that discussion with my parents. They're like, we don't know if we should let you listen to this. It's We're hearing it's bad. And it's like, mom, it's shout at the devil, not with the devil. Oh, that's a good point. Okay, go ahead. So, but no, for all the reasons we've already mentioned, uh, and I'm glad both of you touched on the the Helter Skelter. Again, that was the first time I had ever heard that song. I had no idea it was a cover until many years later. So that was my introduction to that. Uh, again, Greg talked about the music video, which was in heavy rotation. You know me, I'm a big music video guy. I loved it. And yeah, it was just one of these albums where it was like, you'll put the, you know, I had the cassette. So it's like you press play, you get that in the beginning intro where you're like, okay, where's this going? And then, yeah, bam, it gets right into the next song. And you're like, oh my God, these, these guys really... They got something to say. And um, yeah, so my number two pick, Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil. Nice. Can I just say, can I just say though, that the, you were talking about Netflix and the movie? I, am I the only one that's like, Netflix lives off series, like eight, eight episode series and you can binge watch them. Yep. I don't understand why Netflix didn't make the Dirt an eight part series, man. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why they just condensed it into a movie. I mean, there was... There was so much more to tell, and there was so much more they could have done. And I, I was so disappointed that they, they they turned it into just one movie when I felt you, you could have made an eight-episode series. That's how good that book is. That's how amazing those stories are. And I, I was just disappointed that they didn't make it a, a series and just turned it into a, a, a movie. Yeah, was it like a, like a scripted type of thing? It wasn't a documentary, right? Yeah, no, I was scripted. It had wow. Machine Gun Kelly playing Tommy Lee, which I thought was weird. Okay, my number two. I'm going with Blizzard of Oz from Ozzy Osbourne in 1981. Nice. Back when I was in grade eight, some of the, the quote-unquote bad kids, they were listening to this music. And so I was kind of curious. You know, I was interested, like, what this is all about. And I think they listened to Ozzy mostly because they wanted to be seen as being bad. And, you know, like you know it had all this satanic imagery in it and he, he would bite the heads off bats and all that stuff so Ozzy appealed to those kids but for me I didn't care about any of that stuff for me the music was where it was always at and the music on this album is unbelievable Randy Rhodes guitar playing is simply some of the best guitar ever to appear on a metal album like he was just so so slick in his playing and then the songs like most people just kind of gravitate right to crazy train and for good reason i mean it's a great song but for me like where do you where, where do you start on this like there's, there's i don't know and then crazy train like i mentioned there's goodbye to romance and d and suicide solution and mr crowley and no bone movies revelation and steal away the night every single song on this album is fantastic i had two of these old ipods kicking around so I stuck some songs on them and I gave them to my two boys. And one of the songs that I put on them was I Don't Know from this. And so now both my kids love this song. It's so good. Um, 
Ozzy had this unique, unique voice. And his music just, it just jumps out at you, you know? And not only did he have a unique voice, but he had, he had a real unique sound to his music. I think a lot of it was Randy Rhodes' guitar playing and his songwriting too. Um, but this, this album, like I say, it's amazing. I still think it's Ozzy's best work of his musical career. And I mean, if you think about it, to leave an iconic band like Black Sabbath, you know, after after he gave the world Iron Man and Paranoid and then going on to do even better work on your own. Uh, and, and the thing was, it was popular with the mainstream. The album went five times platinum. Like, so, oh, Blizzard of Oz. It's just amazing. I can't say enough. So, all right, we're down to the nitty gritty now. Number one, uh, heavy metal album of the 80s. Greg, what do you got? Uh, just to go back to uh, Ozzy with Randy Rhodes, mm-hmm. uh, that Ozzy Randy Rhodes tribute live album is awesome too. Yes. I love that album. Yes. Yeah, that's so good. The that one where, really where, where Randy Rhodes is like up on his shoulders and playing his guitar on the on the cover. Yep that so, that to me that to me is a fantastic live album. That they all that stuff that you were just talking about on the, the Blizzard of Oz uh, comes out fantastic on that live album. I I, I can't get enough of it. So okay. Uh, anyways, uh, come back to it. Number one album uh, is not, for me, is not only the number one heavy metal album of the 80s. It's not only the number one heavy metal album of uh, all time. It's the number one album of all time, in my opinion, without a doubt. You can't touch it. It's perfection. It's Metallica's Master of Puppets. Mm. It is their third album, and it is... Recorded in Denmark with Fleming Ramusen. I think I'm pronouncing his name right there. And it really changed the landscape of heavy metal because at that point, people sort of shifted over to, I don't want my bands anymore with hairspray and makeup and tight clothes. I want guys coming out here with messy, greasy hair and jeans and T-shirt and just playing hard and it opened up a genre of metal called thrash metal which opened up a whole new world of uh, bands coming out of the san francisco bay area scene like exodus and testament uh even though slayer wasn't from san francisco they got looped into that and it was so incredible that when they first started opening from master of puppets they were the opening act for ozzy at the time and Ozzy was going to these arenas and they're sold out everywhere he went. But by the time Ozzy got on stage, more than three quarters of the venue had already left because everybody went there to see Metallica. That's how impressive it was. And they were just starting to steamroll and starting to take off. And uh, they went over to Europe in uh, September of 86. And uh, they were touring with Anthrax at the time. It was uh, doing their Among the Living, uh, which is a fantastic album, by the way. And uh, they unfortunately uh, had a bus accident. And uh, when the bus uh, flipped over, their bassist Cliff Burton died. And uh, a lot of people thought that that would be the end of Metallica. Uh, but they they went out and quickly found a, another bassist. And a lot of people thought that it was maybe too soon. And it turned out it was too soon. Because if you see that uh, documentary that they did some kind of monster where they, they, James goes into rehab and the band's basically on the verge of breaking up, they basically come to admit that they really treated their new bassist, Jason Newstead, uh, so poorly. They didn't even allow him to have bass on the next album, which was Justice for All. They turned the bass down on him. So you can't even hear his bass <laughs> on the next album. But Master of Puppets is that one album where from beginning to end, it's all killer, no filler. Every song is a hit. And the word, the word, like the weakest song on the album, you put that on anybody else's album, and it's a huge hit. That's that's how good it was. And in 2015, it was the first metal album selected by the Library of Congress in the U.S. for preservation in the National Recording Registry for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Like you can't get more perfect. Than Metallica's Master of Puppets. It's just their best stuff. It basically announced to the world, we're here and we're taking metal by the reins and we're changing it and you guys are going to like it no matter what. And I can't recommend it enough. Fantastic album. I don't think you could have had the whole 90s grunge scene without Metallica. Nope. Absolutely not. I agree. That influential. So 
Oh, great pick. All right, uh, Derek, what have you got for your number one uh, heavy metal album from the 1980s? Oh, I mean, Greg's a hard act to follow there. So, I, I mean, I feel that no matter what I say now, it's going to be a letdown. So, thanks, bud. I, I'm Aussie to your Metallica, apparently. Hopefully, three-quarters of our audience hasn't turned off the recording. Um, so, my number one pick, again, you know my tastes. They're pretty mainstream. Uh, this one is also a fairly mainstream rock slash metal album. Uh, I'm going with Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses, released in 1987. When we did our top favorite uh, rock songs of the 80s, I had Welcome to the Jungle as my number one. I think this album is definitely, if not my, well, it is my number one, personal number one choice for my favorite rock album, favorite heavy metal album of the 80s. I think it's a solid pick. Again, lots of great uh, songs on this that that really emphasize that that whole rock and roll sound. It's You know, it's... Uh, Welcome to the Jungle, uh, which I just mentioned, Sweet Child of Mine, Paradise City, uh, Night Train, Mr. Brownstone. Like this thing had all these songs that were released that were that were hits. People just latched onto it. It was that combination. It's like Greg was saying with with when Metallica came out. It's like you know they sort of opened the doors. Well, this one came out a year later, and now that people were willing to to open their minds a little bit and and say, okay, well, what else you got? I, maybe maybe Metallica's a little too heavy for me. What else you got? And I think Guns N' Roses was sort of that good. Uh, middle ground where it's like, yeah, they're still rock and roll. And and you could definitely say that they're still heavy metal, but they were still close enough to the mainstream that they were able to get that mainstream radio play. They were able to get the the videos uh, through uh, MTV and much music. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that they're, this is their debut album, which for a debut for a band to have this strong an outing as their first time out of the gate is, is phenomenal in and of itself. But yeah, it holds up. It stands the test of time. These are classic songs. This is a great album. This is my number one pick. I think it's a great pick. And, uh, you know, you could argue that they kind of peaked, you know, with, with that, with their, their debut album, but, uh, Oh, it's so good. And, and, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, sweet child of mine when you like up until then heavy metal was like three chords and like kind of thrashy. And then they come in with this crazy intro that's just so great and so different. Oh, that was a good, that was a good pick. All right, my number one, not only the greatest heavy metal album of the 80s, it's the greatest comeback album of all time. Derek, uh, you mentioned this one already, but I'm elevating it all the way to number one. That's Back in Black by ACDC. Nice. The thing is, the band had already established themselves as this, you know, huge international success. And they were pumping out song after song. And there were some great songs. They had like Highway to Hell and TNT. And it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. And then in 1980, like you mentioned, Bon Scott, their lead singer, died. And, the you know, this would have killed most bands. But but they not only did they not disband, they went out and got Brian Johnson. And they came out with their best album ever. Like every single song on this album is amazing. Like you were talking about Hell's Bells, to shoot a thrill. What do you do for money, honey? Like giving the dog a bone, you know, have a drink on me, shake a leg. You shook me all night long back and black. Like, rock and roll ain't noise pollution. Amazing. And the thing was, when it came out, the album only went to number four in the U.S. It hit number one, both in Canada and the U.K. But it has since gone on to sell not three times platinum like Rat or even five times platinum like Motley Crue. Oh, no. Back in Black, 25 times platinum in the U.S. alone. Like, it's huge. It's an amazing album. I think it's ACDC's best album. It's the best heavy metal album of the 80s, in my opinion. You could argue it's the best heavy metal album of all time. You could even make the case that it's one of the best albums, period, of all time. Like I said, a lesser band would have just faded away after the lead singer died. But ACDC instead came out with their, their, their best work ever. So it's my number one. Great list, guys. Nice, nice, good pick. Yeah, nice very impressive list. I liked, uh, I like Derek's Nine Inch Nails, Pretty Hate Machine out of the. That was a out of the box type pick. I I enjoyed that. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was an interesting pick. I just wanted to, well, especially good, considering good, you you liked a lot of uh, mainstream stuff, and you were even saying you liked kind of more mainstream, but that one was was off the beaten path for sure. Well, it couldn't all be hair metal and glam metal, right? It had to mm -hmm. had to have a little edge to it. Well, one of the best comments I had, I was talking to my friend about this uh, when we were going over the list, and he, he was surprised when uh, I was going to pick a hair band, and I picked Motley Crue, Shout Out the Devil. He's like, oh, I, I figured you were going to. But he's like, I'm surprised you're, you're mentioning a hair metal band. And I said, well, you know, we're talking about all the different genres of, of, of metal, so you got to figure, hair metal is like is like marijuana, and, you know, Slayer is like heroin. 
technically they're both drugs. You know, one's heavier than the other, but you still got to classify them as drugs. <laughs> and so that's why I I, I said to him, I got to I got to choose a hair metal band because it is a genre of heavy metal. It, it's not really my favorite genre, but you know, again, is it, we got to include everything, and that's again why I liked uh, some of these picks. I thought they were great. I thought we we picked a whole bunch of different genres in there, but that Nine Inch Nails uh, I thought was a good pick. Mm-hmm. Thanks, bud. All right. Yep. Well, now it is time to fun with Caveman. Greg, since you're our esteemed guest this week, and we like to be kind to our guests, and by kind I mean like throw them to the wolves, you know, kind of thing. Uh, so we're gonna put you in the hot seat, and we're gonna yep. play some trivia. So here's cool. here's how it works. So, since you're a big heavy metal fan, obviously, stuff mm-hmm. from the '80s, especially. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give you the title of a song. All right. All you have to do is name the album that it's on. All right? Okay. Pretty straightforward, right? You can, you can do yeah. this. All right? Uh, I'm going to totally bomb, but yeah. Nah, nah, <laughs> in worst case scenario, I'll bail you out and I'll help you out with the I was going to say, you, I'll be your phone a friend if you if you don't have it. Not that I'll know it if you don't, but. All right, if, fair if, enough. If I, if I have to, you know, I, I can, I can you know, bail you out. All right, okay, so here's, we'll start you with some easy ones, okay? Flying High Again. What album is Flying High Again on? That's uh, Ozzy, uh, Blizzard of Oz. I'm wow. Sorry, I'm sorry, it's on Diary of a Madman. It's on his next album after that, yeah. All right, okay. here, here's super easy mainstream one for you. I Want to Rock. What album is I Want to Rock? Oh, oh, I know, I know. I'll let Derek take this one. Derek. I know, it was it was Twisted Sister, and there it was... Uh, uh, D. Snyder oh my holding God. the bone in his hand. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, it was. Oh my God, I'm blanking on. I had it, and as soon as Greg said, "Take it away," I was like, "Uh oh, I forget." Greg, save me. Stay hungry. Stay hungry. That's it. Got it. All right. All right. Talk dirty to me. It's by Poison. Oh. I'll give you a hint. Well, I know it. Uh, look what the cat dragged in. Very good. All right. Bad Boys Running Wild by the Scorpions. That, is, is, is that on Rocky Like a Hurricane? Oh, I'm sorry. The album is called Love at First Sting. Oh, Love at First Sting. I'll first be honest sting. with you. Growing up, I, my friends used to be like, are you going to the Scorpions concert with us? I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> I love the Scorpions. They're pretty good. All right. Slick Black Cadillac. Oh, my friend Christian's going to love this one. That's Quiet Riot, Mental Health. Metal Health, but I'll give it to you. Okay. All right. All right. Knocking at your back door. What album is Knocking at your back door on? If you need a hint, do you know the, you know the band? No, I know the band. That's, uh, that's Deep Purple. Mm-hmm. And it was on that album? album. It was on the name. It was uh, Perfect Strangers. Very good. From 1984. Okay. Kickstart My Heart. Too easy. That's uh, Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood. Ooh, now we're going to get a couple tougher ones for you. Rainbow in the Dark. Rainbow in the Dark. By Dio. Like a rainbow in the Dark. Yes. I know that song. Yeah. Um, you can picture the album cover. From is it? Is it uh, who, who, who sings it? Dio. Dio, Dio. Oh man, it's 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 not on. Um, is it on Holy Diver? Sure is. It's on yeah. Holy Diver. Good for you. All right, you've got another thing coming. Yeah, that that's on another album we should have mentioned in the eighties. Here, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. Judas Priest, uh, screaming for vengeance. Very very good. Cult of personality. Oh, yeah. I, I was just actually talking to somebody about going to see uh, Living Color and Bad Brains uh, back in the day. Uh, that's uh, Living Color off the album Vivid. That's a good song. I love that song. The last one. Pepperoni Pizza Gives Me the <laughs> <laughs> That That is off Ted DiBiase's uh, uh, album uh, uh, Everybody's Got a Price. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was actually the bonus track on the wrestling album from 1985. <laughs> Remember the one that had Land of a Thousand Dances on it? 
<laughs> so good job. Well, not only did I have that album, I had the sequel of the pile driver with Coke <laughs> there and the construction yes. helmet. I had that yes. album too. I remember that too. Yes, I forgot about yeah. that one. Good for you. All right, big thanks to Greg Martin for joining us oh. this week. Heavy metal albums from the eighties definitely is your thing. I tell you what, will you come back and, and join us again sometime here on the podcast? Oh, absolutely, man. Anytime. I, I absolutely enjoyed uh, being on the show today. I enjoyed doing the research for the show today. Uh, like I say, if you want to talk anything music, I got, I got hundreds of books. I've seen hundreds of documentaries. I've gone to hundreds of concerts. You name it, music. It's my, it's my wheelhouse. Anytime, give me a call. You want to take over right, for Derek? Derek? He's pretty much sick <laughs> hey, to death hey, of my dad jokes on my songs at this point, I got to figure, so. <laughs> so uh, okay, so next week, it's time for, once again, for a pop culture fantasy draft. So last time out, it was 1981, and we did that back on episode 193. So next week, we're going to be holding another draft. And just to go over it once again, Derek, Derek and I will each draft a pop culture team from a year, and the team has to be comprised of three movies, three songs, three TV shows, and a personal pick. And this time, it's back to me to suggest a year. And you know, I really loved doing the draft for 1984. That was a hell of a year for pop culture. So I want to stay kind of close to that. So I think, Derek, what I'd like to do is come back next week and draft a pop culture team from the year 1985. Ooh. Okay. Okay. So we're going to... throw down the gauntlet, buddy. This is, yeah. this is my... this. Remember you said previously... The yep. year when you were 11 is your year. This is the year I was 11. This Ooh, is my year. This will be I'm your waiting. year. Oh, you're going to beat when me on this one. I plan so, to. Well, it should be good. So uh, make sure and join us uh, next week. We're going to be doing our pop culture fantasy draft for 1985. Big thanks once again for Greg Martin for coming out. Until next time, this is Chris McBrien on behalf of Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.